You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In today's episode, David hosts a discussion on the latest from Myanmar, where the military regime that seized power in 2021 has recently enforced conscription amid plummeting military morale and steady pressure from armed resistance groups. Aspie's Nathan Rusa and the Wilson Center's Lucas Myers talk about how a range of opposition groups are making military gains and where the civil conflict is likely to go in the coming months. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Rowe, and I'm very lucky to be joined in the studio today by Lucas Myers, who's a senior associate for Southeast Asia at the Wilson Center. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And online, we have Nathan Rusa, our own Aspie analyst, a man of many talents, but very well known for his work in satellite imagery analysis. Nathan, thanks for joining us as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to talk about this. So we are talking about Myanmar today, which is obviously still a crisis, but has well and truly dropped down the priorities for global attention. The latest is that it's not going particularly well for the military junta, certainly not well at all for the people of Myanmar. In short, it's bloody protracted and there is no particular end in sight. So Lucas, perhaps starting with you, can you set the scene a little bit for us? How firm is the military junta's grip on power at the moment? Uh, What are the possible pathways that you see for 2024? Thank you. And really, I would say that in the last about five months or so, we have seen a real deterioration in the military's grip, I think, throughout the country, but particularly since what's known as Operation 1027 was launched on October 27th. That really challenged the military when the Three Brotherhood Alliance jumped in in a direct confrontation. They've taken towns, they've taken a significant amount of strategic territory, um, and I'm th- sure Nathan will dive a bit more into those actors. But really what I would say is, is from my point of view, the military's grip on the country is deeply weakened. Morale is suffering. Their troop numbers are, are low. They're having trouble replacing them. Attrition is high. The conscription order that they recently issued is, is another sign of evidence that, that the manpower issue is a serious threat to their hold. Um, and there's also rumors of serious challenges to their leadership. Uh, Minang Klaing is reportedly, uh, there's a lot of doubts about his his role uh, as, as leader of the junta. And so within all that, I would argue that looking ahead, although the conflict is far from over, I think the timeline is a lot shorter likely than people have assessed. I think the military is suffering in, in a variety of battlefronts across the country, and it's not going to end likely in this calendar year, but I do see that the resistance is gaining a lot of momentum. Before we go to Nathan, I'll just follow up on that. I mean, are you actually making a prediction there? Are you saying the timeline towards which end? Are you, are you suggesting so, that the resistance will win out in the end? So I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. Uh, I, I don't want to get too much into a firm prediction, but I would say that the idea that it's a stalemate, which I think you saw in a lot of analysis, uh, especially in 21, 22, well, is no longer the case. I think the fact that the resistance are taking towns, they're seizing territory, and the military has not really demonstrated the capability to mount strategic counteroffensives, especially uh, on the periphery. I mean, that's I think that's clear evidence that this is not a stalemate. This is the momentum is swung. I think fairly far in the direction of the resistance. Uh, and in terms of timelines, obviously, you know, predictions are a dangerous game for any analyst. But I do think that 
this is different in my view than previous outbreaks of, of violence in Myanmar's long-running civil war. I think this is a much more uh, serious challenge to the military. It's fascinating. Nathan, I'll get you to offer a view on that, but perhaps do that by way of an assessment of what is clearly a multifaceted resistance. There are all these different groups. Some of the some are pro-democracy, some are sort of ethnically based. Can you just give us a, a bit of a description and a breakdown of who these groups are um, as quickly as you can and assess, you know, how they might actually come together to reach the kind of outcome that uh, that Lucas is talking about? Yeah, I'd start with echoing Lucas's sort of assessment of the trajectory of all of this. I think previous, like, Five months ago, there were about five towns across the country that were under resistance control, and now that number's pushing 50. There's been a clear, over the last few months, a clear almost loss and withdrawal from a lot of the periphery of the country. And so I think the question is not, will the military be able to hold the country together, but how small will they have to like retreat to, to sort of consolidate power in sort of a central core of Mandalay, Yangon, and Napidor, and how long that can survive a concerted resistance push. When it comes to explaining the resistance, I think it's best to break it down into two or three different groups. Firstly, there's the political resistance, the anti-coup resistance that sort of sprung from the 2021 anti-coup protests, where a lot of the, the people that were peacefully protesting saw in the face of gunfire that that non-peaceful resistance wasn't really an option anymore. So they went to train to arm themselves and to start fighting back. Other than that, there is the more entrenched and long-lasting ethnic resistance organizations, which are the sort of the ethnic armies that have been fighting the Burmese state for over 75 years now. And they're well-established, they're well-entrenched in their sort of the, the border regions of the country mostly, but but they had been suffering from decades of being chipped down by the military. The military has this strategy of where they will sign a ceasefire with every group except for one, focus all their sort of violence on that one group until they can push it back and then hold a ceasefire with that group and move their focus to another group. Since the coup, there's been this nationwide sort of awakening and uprising where that that strategy hasn't worked. Instead, it's actually almost tipped on its head with various resistance groups, both ethnic and political, in many ways almost taking turns in hitting the junta where they can see military success. And like I've said, over the past three or four, even five months, we've seen that really change the tone of this entire conflict. So to what extent are they working together and can they actually reach a sort of common position that might allow a, a resistance victory in a way that then leads to a, a more constructive, more democratic government. Yeah, I think there's a lot of fear in Western capitals that the violence in Myanmar and the, the anti-coup resistance is just going to disintegrate into this sort of balkanized, everyone fighting for their own tract of land scenario. And I think that that is something that is quite misguided, honestly, because we have seen a lot of cooperation. And I think more than the outward battlefield cooperation that we're seeing, which right now the first political resistance district center of Kaolin is under a pretty concerted military counteroffensive. It's controlled by the National Unity Government, which is the sort of political resistance. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of ethnic resistance troops helping defend that city. So there is real battlefield um, cooperation. But I think beyond that, there's almost this, this new sort of open-minded 
shared idea of like a federalized Burmese future, which has never seemed viable under, under any other previous administration, not the military, not even the civilian government that led for, for the eight years or so that it did. But there's this new and very graspable and tangible idea of a federal future for Myanmar, which is what a lot of these ethnic groups have been aiming for for decades. And so I think drawing out of that, there's this almost this new sense of compromise and flexibility that we're seeing from the armed groups that we haven't seen before. And of course, there are still challenges, especially on the local level, about who will control what. But but I think, like Lucas has said, this is a very different tone of conflict than the previous decades of sort of ethnic resistance and armies that we've seen. So, Lucas, you've been nodding uh, quite a bit there. Just give us your thoughts on all of that. I agree with everything Nathan just said. I think the key element here is that cooperation on the military side can beget political cooperation later on. Now, of course, you know, yes, many analysts and especially folks in government, you know, express a lot of concern about this fragmentation you know, concern in, in Myanmar, this balkanization scenario. And, and obviously, there's always that threat or that risk. But I do think that the, the evidence we're seeing is, is a very positive trajectory. For instance, in, in Operation 1027, there were drone operators uh, from the NUG Ministry of Defense who were assisting uh, forces in northern Shan states. That's a good sign of, of that sort of military cooperation. On the political side, you know, it's taking time and, and there are groups that are more or less on board with certain elements of the political resistance like the NUG, the National Unity Government. But I do believe that what we're seeing is a greater progress more and more over time. And I think that trust is, it takes a long time to build, but I do believe that's trust forged on the battlefield. And then there's a fundamental change now in, in perception, because I think the key difference from this moment in past uh, iterations of, of Myanmar civil war is that the Bamar majority now understands and sees the military for what it is, this brutal, barbaric actor that is the source of instability in Myanmar. And so really, I think that understanding, you know, it's very late uh, from the perspective of many in the ethnic armed organizations, uh, you know, in the ethnic groups. But I do believe that this, that there is a genuine shift, especially among many of the, the leadership. But of course, it's going to take time and, and, you know, political cooperation is the harder part, in my opinion, than the military. It's lovely to hear uh, an optimistic view on an international crisis because they're, they're very rare at the moment, very uh, few and far between. I want to get on in a moment to guess an international and regional perspective on that. But, but first, I'm fascinated, and perhaps Nathan to you first, by the pro-democracy element of the, the resistance. Just, just tell us a little bit about how that's constituted. Who, who, who's doing the fighting? Are these, uh, are these pro-democracy protesters who were civilians previously and have taken up arms? Are they defectors from the military? What's the, what's the mix of those people? It's pretty complicated, but I think in, in essence, the vast majority of them are people that were involved in these pro-democracy protests that, that sort of faced the live fire from the military. And then they went and sought training and arms and then have come back with this armed resistance. So it, I would say the central actor is the NUG, the National Unity Government, which by and large is the, the, the government, I guess, Technically, it's the government in exile, but they have a concrete presence on the ground in a lot of places. But then beyond that, you have a lot more local groups that are working with this NUG to varying degrees. And we're seeing that increase, but there's still there's still issues with sort of 
local militias, pro-democracy militias, mixing and often cooperating with the NUG organized troops. But it's, it's a very complicated picture. I think I think the best way to put it is that in the immediate aftermath of the coup, there was this massive nationwide protest against the coup that was met with violence, and then there was this 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 switch that that, that flipped, sort of going non civil resistance isn't working. No one is coming to save us. We are standing with literally textbooks in backpacks to try and protect us from live fire being fired by the military. This isn't how we create a new future. And then that that is sort of what forged this this um, new political resistance, um, armed resistance that we're seeing in much of the lowland and the traditional Bamar areas. So where are they getting the arms and the training from? Has that come from some of the ethnic groups? Yeah, especially initially, there were several different um, ethnic resistance organizations and ethnic um, armed organizations that provided safe harbor arms and training. But since then, they have have sort of established both methods of smuggling weapons themselves um, and also, to some extent, the local manufacture of weapons, ammunition and mortars, especially, especially in drones, actually. That's been a big area where there's been a lot of indigenous creation of and and supply and nathan just sticking with you for a moment you've been doing some of your satellite analysis on this issue just give us a few highlights from that what have you learned i think the satellite imagery most clearly shows two things it shows the change in the junta from being a force that can move out into the countryside conduct raids and attack villages to one that is basically hauled up in extremely fortified bases defending themselves against resistance attacks. And that's something that's happened pretty much throughout the country, even in areas where you wouldn't say the resistance has firm control. Basically, the only place that the junta has free movement without significant reinforcement, close air support and armor support is these fortified positions that is spread throughout the territory they control. Um, The other thing I think it shows is the clear violence that the junta has inflicted on the people of Myanmar. When they were fighting the ethnic armies, there was this thing called the Four Cuts campaign, where they sought to separate these ethnic political parties and armies from food support and population. And you're seeing the same thing where the the marauding troops sort of of the junta were going are going out burning villages, conducting um atrocities basically throughout the country. And so I think that's the two clearest things in, from the satellite, the change in trajectory from an offensive hunter to a defensive one, and I guess the associated change from a defensive um, war by the resistance to an offensive war by the resistance, but also the scale of atrocities across the Bamaha lands. Just characterise that scale for us quickly. In When you look at recent satellite imagery of large areas, just villages are burnt entirely. You're, it's, it's hard to see a village where there hasn't been arson attacks and basically attempting to force people from where they live. And even in the fighting that we see in Kaolin, for example, one of the first things that we saw struck was the resistance-held district market. And you see this deliberate targeting of civilian infrastructure and civilian buildings, including hospitals and schools. It's just that that, that is taking place across the country, the arson attacks, the, the deliberate burning of civilian infrastructure, and the specific atrocities against sort of protected places. Lucas, where has this left the the Tatmadaw? What's morale like? How are they shaping up? 
Not well. I think, as I mentioned earlier, they recently issued an order demanding conscription to you know, raise new troops. Now, I think the implications of this are not, it's not going to work out, I think, the way that they're anticipating it will. I mean, obviously, their, their territorial control is restricted. They don't have, you know, unchallenged authority over much of the country. Uh, you know, maybe the resistance claims about 50%. And I think, you know, in the, the ability of them to actually raise their in, in troops from, you know, even via conscription is, is actually quite limited. And it may even encourage many folks to join resistance forces or at least flee to avoid uh, being dragged into to fighting for something they don't necessarily you know believe in. Right. And I think, you know, speaking to the morale issue, I think that's crucial. Uh, I think the Tatmadaw has significantly suffered. And this is what you hear. Uh, from folks connected, folks on the ground. The, the idea is, is that within the military, there's deep dissatisfaction. I think many of the junior officers especially are concerned that they're being thrown away in this conflict. Many of them, you know, the military has this practice of, I mean, there's a deep threat of, of you know, if I desert or defect, you know, there'll be a chat. My family is at risk. Right. And, and so I think it's not an army that's held together necessarily by a strong sense of camaraderie anymore. It's very much held together by fear and, and punish and fear of you know, accountability. Right. Involvement in atrocities. You know, what's going to happen after this? If I you know, have done this, how can I leave now? And in speaking about their combat capabilities, the, the, the two elements that have proven the most effective for the military are heavy artillery and, and air power. Because by and large, the resistance doesn't really have much of an ability to counter that. But what we're seeing, especially now, is there's increasing you know, helicopter crashes, for instance, or in, in you know, resistance claims that they've downed it. Uh, you know, for instance, you could do that with a 50 caliber heavy machine gun, for instance, with, with a low flying helicopter. But really, I think what you can see is it points to they're flying huge numbers of sorties. Their pilots are exhausted. They're pressured on all ends. You know they're they're losing you know outlying outposts quite regularly now, especially in areas targeted uh, by this Operation Ten Twenty Seven and the following campaigns. Really, this this is a military that's under siege, and this it's it's a tightening grip uh, or I mean a tightening noose around their neck essentially. Fascinating. Just tell us a bit about the neighbors of Myanmar at the moment, the involvement of China, India, perhaps Thailand as well. What sort of Involvement do they have? Are they making any kind of difference? Are they having any kind of influence on what's going on in Myanmar at the moment? I think it's a very complex picture, and all three have subtly different policies. But but generally, I think they trend towards a fear of what would happen if if Myanmar fragmented. I think that's particularly for India and Thailand. Both of them have tended towards engaging the junta and being quite cold towards the resistance. You know, in Thailand's case. You know, humanitarian aid, for instance, goes over the border, right? But but there's oftentimes who it gets directed to is not necessarily the people you wanted to, not necessarily the resistance. And I think what's challenging is so in Bangkok, especially the military-dominated government there, you know, feels some natural sympathy towards the junta in Myanmar, and they, and they tend to also fear that potential breakdown on their border. India is very concerned about its northeast, and so that encourages India to engage the junta. They're concerned about spillover effects onto their unstable Northeast. And then China's arguably the most complex of all of them. It's for a long time, you could say it's a dual approach where China has maintained ties to actors across Myanmar's political spectrum. For instance, ethnic armed organizations on the border, China has sold weapons or provided weapons to. It has uh, wields quite a bit of influence over them. 
at the same time that it's engaging in expanding engagements with the junta in, in Naypyidaw. And so it's a very complex picture. And China really, I think the best way to understand it is China is attempting to pragmatically pursue its own interests, its own influence in the country that it sees as strategically important. Long term, China would love to see Myanmar uh, become a corridor. The China-Myanmar Economic Corridor is a part of the Belt and Road Initiative that China's put uh, quite a bit of money into. The idea being it's access for China's southwestern provinces to the Indian Ocean and, and, and especially sea lines of communication that carry oil, gas via pipelines. And, and really what China wants to see is long term that those investments are protected and advanced. And then it also doesn't really want to see Myanmar become too much of a a broken, fragmented, failed state because there's risks of, say, refugees flowing into China. There's risks of potential violence over the border, these kinds of things. And so China has a variety of interests that it's trying to accommodate. Uh, and recently, transnational crime is another one. And, and that's part of what led into Operation 1027 and how the resistance especially has framed what it's doing. It's like, oh, we're cracking down on transnational crime. Obviously, it's a huge, hugely complex picture, and I've tried to distill it down. But really, it's a mixed bag for everyone involved. And I think the countries along Myanmar's border haven't quite figured out how to deal with the resistance, in my opinion. You're doing a great job. But just quickly, to for clarity, Beijing's goal appears to be backing all horses in the hope of whoever emerges, it will have a reasonable relationship with. Exactly. And, and during the Aung San Suu Kyi government, they had very positive relations. Uh, and, and I think China, if anything, they're, they're quite pragmatic on these things. I think it's not very ideological. Um, the one thing I would say, though, is and, and over the last year, China has felt that the NUG in particular, the National Unity Government, is too close to the West. And this is something that they've they've felt a lot of concern about. Um, and so that element is complicating things for the resistance a bit. And you've seen the resistance attempt to pitch themselves as, as you know, hey, we're the more viable alternative. The junta is unstable. They're unreliable. Your investments are at risk. Hey, you know, work with us. We can take how uh, we can crack down on the transnational crime. We, you know, will work with you. They put out a statement that was it's about, oh, we, you know, we welcome working with China. That was intended clearly as a signal to Beijing, like, please, you know, trust us. Because um, at the end of the day, it's a pro-democracy movement. But the reality is, is China's their biggest neighbor. China has a massive amount of influence in the country. And if if the resistance wants to win, they have to come to some sort of uh, accommodation with Beijing at the end of the day. That's just the reality of it, I think. Speaking of the West and to you, Nathan, and we'll, we'll, we will have to wrap up, but uh, so I'll, I'll get you to keep your um, answer reasonably short, I'm sorry to say. What would you like to see more from uh, from the West, from the international community, and equally from ASEAN as well? I mean, it's hard to prescribe policy from this perspective, but I think at my heart, what, what I think is the biggest obstacle for productive policy is the idea that... Western countries, I think, in many ways are looking for a return of the status quo, a return of a sort of semi-stable devil that they know, essentially. Not, 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 not outright supporting the military, they're certainly not doing that, but also sort of hoping that things can, they can look the other way and things will come back to sort of that, that, that weird sort of balance between military and civilian government that we, can, that we know how to manage. And I think that that is a counterproductive sort of mindset to look at. I think I think the idea of that is dead in the water, and there, there's no way that there's going to be that sort of meaningful reconciliation in the near future. 
basically every armed resistance actor across the country sees this new goal of eradicating the the, the Tatmadaw military complex. And so I think there needs to be this recognition across, across Western countries that there's no longer the option of sort of looking elsewhere and hoping things go back to something that we knew and something and how it was. And there needs to be productive policy and also to see this as an opportunity, not necessarily to, not necessarily even in this ideological way of we can foster a new pro-democratic Myanmar, but also just Myanmar is a country of incredible resources, natural and human. And the military has proven time and time again that it is perhaps the worst actor to manage this. So much of Myanmar is wasted by military management that there's now this opportunity to sort of forge a, a, a new federalized, productive Myanmar. And even without the explicit backing and the support of our supply of arms, which I don't think anyone in the West would be willing to do, just just this this shifting this ideology of we hope that we can get back to something we're familiar with, to, to seeing the opportunity that that I guess in many ways this revolution has to offer, I think would would do wonders for Western policy. And Lucas, to wrap up, perhaps you can pick up there. What about Southeast Asia? What about uh, the region in ASEAN? I think, unfortunately, I, I'm quite cynical about ASEAN's role here because fundamentally ASEAN has two elements of its practice, its charter that it holds very dear and, and has not proven willing to budge on, and that's the non-interference principle and then it's, it's the consensus principle. And so within ASEAN, there are a variety of opinions about how to, to respond to the military coup in Myanmar, and, and that hamstrings its ability to act as a group. And then the non-interference clause also leads ASEAN countries to be very reluctant to impose any sort of punishment on the junta. And even that the junta thumbs its nose at them. And you know the five-point consensus, which is ASEAN's you know, preferred sort of framework for moving towards some sort of negotiated settlement. I mean, the junta has absolutely shown zero interest in abiding by this. And yet ASEAN, because of its structural impediments as an organization, just hasn't been able to, to really move uh, the needle on any of this. And, and I don't see that changing just because some of the interests of the countries within ASEAN uh, aren't likely to change. I don't see Thailand necessarily changing in that its view or, or some of the other mainland states, especially. But I think long term, what the West and, and, and countries in Southeast Asia that have a more favorable view towards the resistance can do is it's really bringing the resistance into the room in a way that, that actually elevates them and recognizes their growing strength on the ground and, and their ability. For instance, in ASEAN, I think this is something that they should be doing is they should be talking to the national unity government in much more public settings uh, than, the, than what they're doing, because right now they're, they're not doing that enough. Um, and if you can you know, show that you're, say, that you're backing this group, I think that would help them politically with other actors who are more challenging like China. Gents, you've done a fantastic job of capturing the complexity there while not making me feel fatally pessimistic about one of the crises as I, uh, as I alluded to before. So thank you both very much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been great. And thank you for having me. It's wonderful. Aspie's Blake Johnson and Ewan Graham joined David Rowe to discuss geopolitics in the Pacific and what to expect in 2024. They dissect the significance of PNG Prime Minister Marape's recent visit to Canberra, Tuvalu's election, and Nauru's switch of diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China. Welcome everyone, this is David Rowe. This week, 
Papua New Guinea Prime Minister James Marape has been in Canberra and delivered the first ever address to Parliament by a Pacific leader, usually a privilege that has been extended to US presidents, uh, Chinese presidents and uh, the occasional leader from places like India, but this is the first one by a Pacific leader, so quite a significant moment. Marape acknowledged the security issues in PNG at the moment and urged Australia not to give up on PNG. Not that anyone was thinking, I think that that was terribly likely, and uh, stressed the priority he's putting towards achieving economic independence for his country. So it's been a really busy start to the year for the Pacific. We've had elections, we've had discussions of new security agreements, including in PNG, and potential votes of no confidence looming. It's time to make some sense of what's happening in the Pacific now and how that is affecting security in the region. So I'm joined by our senior analysts, Blake Johnson and Ewan Graham. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on the podcast. Let's kick off with PM Marape's visit. Very significant, as I say, the joint sitting of parliament uh, being addressed. What have you both read into the optics and the substance of the visit? Perhaps first to you, Blake. I think it's a fantastic thing overall to have Pacific leaders addressing the Australian Parliament. And of course, uh, PNG, as our closest neighbour, is a, a wonderful place to start that Australia's ties with PNG run so deep uh, from their pre-independence days. And a lot of that was reflected in what Marape was speaking about during his address. In terms of substance, the joint statement that has followed has provided some great detail into what the future of Australia's security assistance looks like for PNG including new training centres across the country, which Marape has reiterated he would like to open up for other Pacific police forces to benefit from as well. You know, from this address, it's very clear that uh, Marape wants to see projects in Papua New Guinea that provide them with that greater financial independence and projects that will allow them to stand on their own two feet and contribute positively to maintaining peace and security in the Pacific region. In recent times, they've done a great job of that uh, with the PNGDF working alongside Australian forces in providing stability in Solomon Islands. Of course, uh, this visit also provides a great PR opportunity for Marape as well, as he is facing a threat of a vote of no confidence in the near future on his home soil. So a number of MPs have resigned from the government in the wake of the PNG riots last month, and the constitutional grace period to remove the leader is about to end. So it all kind of ties into this visit that's happening at the moment. Mm. So positive optics and significant substance as well by the sound of things. Ewan, what are your thoughts? Well, PNG's um, just one year off uh, its 50th anniversary of independence. I think that underlines the, the importance of the, of the symbolism. Clearly, Prime Minister Marape is trying to project an independent, self-sustaining image for, for PNG to sort of cast off the old aid prism through which Australia often views its Pacific relationships. And I think that, you know, he was confident in doing that. As Blake has said, I mean, I think it, it underlines the fact that there is a, a threat politically still over Mr. Marape with the no confidence vote. So I think Australia also needs to view this realistically, that uh, although the symbolism is, is very positive, uh, I think the broader issue is that we're in a, a period of quite chronic political instability across the Pacific. And that's obviously going to constrain Australia's ability to project its its influence in this uh, heated geopolitical circumstance. So, so I guess the economic independence for PNG is clearly a positive thing in itself. It is for any country. 
I suppose the, the question that comes to mind, are there aspects to the likely process of, of gaining that economic independence that might challenge some of Australia's strategic interests? Obviously, you know, economic development in PNG, where it is supported by, say, China, for instance, could that process of reaching economic independence throw up some, some challenging dimensions for Australia? Well, Australia, as part of the agreement that was uh, concluded last December, pledged around $200 million in assistance to PNG. In the agreement just released today, it also highlights the importance of budgetary support from Australia to PNG. So I think this highlights, although Prime Minister Marape has a clear ambition to become economically independent, the economic headwinds that PNG is facing at the moment make that a problematic prospect. Australia is is able to do things that China can't in uh, not just monetary terms. It can offer access to its labour market. The cultural links are, are are closer, and clearly, I think Canberra is trying to exploit those qualitative differences as far as it can. I don't think there's any prospect in which PNG was uh, uh, you know in, about to flip to China in, in any kind of crude way. I think the the links to Australia are too strong, but there may have been some jitters, particularly around China's inroads into internal security, in particular policing. That's been a very promising area of influence for China elsewhere in the Pacific. And I think there'll be some comfort taken in Marape's words on the way into Canberra that PNG would not be signing any kind of major security deal with China. Okay. Blake, I mean, feel free to jump in on that one as well. But just on top of that, I mean, what do you make of the, the discussions so far between China and Australia when it comes to, to a security arrangement? What does it mean for the region? What does it mean for Australia? What does it mean for PNG? Yeah, I think when we're talking about those kind of economic development steps, something that is becoming more and more clear is in the region is that not all of the projects offered can actually deliver on that long-term economic benefit. And that's something that Pacific leaders are becoming more aware of. And that's a great thing. And they're more open to having those kind of open dialogues with other Pacific leaders and with Australia on, on how to assess those benefits and how to move forward in, in selecting the right projects. And I think that's a very key part of finding a economic independence in the future. When it comes to the security agreements, as you had said, it's, it's a region where China has been able to make some advancements across the Pacific. Over the last couple of years, a lot of the equipment and support that they provide, though, is somewhat benign in the sense of providing vehicles and, and things like that. But when they are talking about these agreements and, you know, as you said, PNG were able to raise that this has been a discussion and they weren't looking to pursue anything that would risk their relationship with Australia in any way. Uh, it is important to think about interoperability in equipment that is provided. Uh, to make sure that the support that we're giving them doesn't overlap, it doesn't overburden them. I myself have seen a number of vehicles that have been gifted to the region that aren't suitable just kind of sit in and rotting in car parks because it hasn't been well thought through. Do we have any sense of whether the security problems that we've seen in PNG in recent weeks and months driving a sort of additional impetus for some kind of um, arrangement with China? I mean, is there some kind of like organic or domestic or you know political pressure to pursue that relationship? I think that the PNG security forces are going through a review of the way that they operate at the moment, uh, certainly in response to the riots that occurred last month. 
but that's very much looking inwards at how they should respond, in which way the PNGDF should be involved as opposed to allowing the police to, to take the most of the work. And I don't think it's created a, a great push politically or within security forces to seek additional external help in that area. It's more about tweaks internally uh, to find the right, right way to respond. You and do you agree? Well, the joint statement does make some pointed references to the you know, the importance of internal security in, in Papua New Guinea, but it also references traditional and non-traditional security. So I think there is a, a clear nod to the, the fact that there are core defense interests that straddle the internal security, but also the wider strategic situation. Papua New Guinea's geography is important, not just to Australia, but we've seen the United States leaning in with a defense cooperation agreement last year as well. So that there is that broader context. If I could just cycle back briefly to the question about economic independence, I think that it's important that Australia is honest with Merapi and other visiting Pacific leaders to underline that China's offers are not simply you know, alternative finance. There are strings attached. It may look attractive on the way in, but as Australia itself has seen uh, at the receiving end of economic coercion, political ends and objectives and strategic motivations are intertwined with those economic linkages. So if economic independence is the the aim for Papua New Guinea, I think they need to be cautious about the level of engagement with China because, as Australia knows, China has some underlying strategic motivations in the region which are not benign for either Australia or the Pacific uh, countries themselves. Yeah, and we've seen that evident uh, over many years, haven't we? Ewan, just staying with you, China's broader push for more security agreements in the region, just uh, taking a step back and looking, that, looking at that strategically, what does that mean for Australia? What does it mean for the US? What does it mean for our other like-minded partners? Well, if we cast our lens more broadly into the region, it's clearly, I think, the, the country of greatest concern in that respect is the Solomon Islands, where we've seen a policing deal that has, I think, a clear tie to regime security in the uh, in the minds of Prime Minister Sogavare there. And I think policing has a dual edge because policing, although it's civil in, in Australian terms, in China's terms, the policing activity is, is done by the People's Armed Police. So there is no separation between military and law and order. And, and law and order is a very soft underbelly, if you like, to get into the political apparatus, the judicial apparatus within those countries. And I think we've seen um, China making progress, not just in the Solomon Islands, but policing has been an effective way to, to spread its influence in the kind of soft area of, of security. And it's also a way to engage with, with more countries that don't have armed forces. Only Papua New Guinea, Fiji and Tonga have fully fledged armed forces in the region, but policing uh, obviously is 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 um, important for all Pacific Island states. We'll just move on to the Tuvalu election. The former Prime Minister there, Kausia Natano, has not returned to Parliament. There are concerns this could impact the relationship with Australia and potentially also with Taiwan. Blake, first to you, just give us the latest on Tuvalu's politics. Yeah, so we are still awaiting all of the MPs to be brought into Tuvalu from the outer islands, Atafunafuti, because of poor weather. The boats have been waiting for a bit over a week now. But Tuvalu's elections are always a tight race. 
Haseo Natano in when he was voted in parliament in 2019, he got through on six or seven votes and, and this time around he missed out on his seat by just 17 or somewhere in the teens as well, which just goes to show with such a low population of only 11,000 in Tuvalu, a couple of votes can make a big difference to the future of the country, uh, but it also doesn't necessarily reflect an enormous shift in the way that people are thinking. So when I'm looking at the Tuvalu election, I'm not thinking that this is necessarily a, a reflection of criticism against the Falapilla Union, against the relationship with Australia that Natano brought about in the last couple of months, but it could still be something that is heavily discussed in the in the coming months with whoever ends up forming the new government in Tuvalu. So we have another former Prime Minister, uh, Anello Sapoanga, who has expressed his intent to kind of tear up the Falapilla Union and, you know, that might mean that Australia has to go back to the drawing board in the way that we want to pursue an agreement with Tuvalu and provide support. And additionally, we have some other politicians that are wanting to consider a switch in diplomatic recognition and cut ties with Taiwan in the future. I think we could hear the sounds of a young child in the background there, Blake. I think you've just uh, you've just won the affections among all of our listeners uh, who uh, understand the difficulties of multitasking in the modern age. Ewan, to you, just uh, what are your reflections on Tuvalu politics at the moment, particularly in relation to the Falapilla Union? It underlines just how difficult it is for Australia to project influence, even with the smallest of Pacific Island states. In retrospect, it was a, a risky venture to proposed the Falapilla Union just so close to a general election. But I think that uh, risk was in some senses forced on Canberra because it became clear that politicians in Tuvalu were were casting around and that um, a potential switch to uh, diplomatic relations to China was potentially in the offing. So Canberra had to get in first. I think that my gut feeling is that uh, it's not impossible that the whole union would be dropped, but that's probably the least likely outcome. More likely is that it will be diluted in some sense. And I think the the most worrying prospect is that the security and defense aspects of the deal. It is a very broad deal that covers other things, including climate migration, of course, but the defense and security aspects, which are uppermost in my mind from an ASPI analyst point of view, I think are potentially in in play. And if they're watered down, that will make it difficult for Australia to use the positive precedent of the Falapili Union to push for other deals elsewhere in in the region, particularly given the fact that Nauru was seen as the most likely candidate to follow. But we've seen events intercede there with Nauru flipping from uh, Taipei to Beijing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously a hugely significant moment and the, the timing made it all the more noteworthy uh, coming right after the Taiwan election. Blake, can you reflect a little bit on the on the Nauru switch of recognition? What concerns does it raise for you, both for Nauru and for the region? Yeah, obviously uh, every Pacific Island country is entitled to their sovereign choice in the way that they recognise other countries. And Australia has done very well not to comment on that and you know, it is entirely an independent choice. What is of concern when countries make this choice is the pressures that come after that. So, you know, looking at Solomon Islands and Kiribati as two more recent examples of when there has been a switch in their elections back in 2019, 
we've seen, particularly in Solomon Islands, a lot of pressure coming to other parts of the community. We've seen in the last couple of months, the Chinese embassy has placed pressure on media outlets in Solomon Islands, independent media outlets to uh, change what they're publishing, to align with China's views. And it's those sorts of pressures and that sort of influence that might come from this decision that is the actual area of concern, more so than the decision to switch recognition itself. And Ewan, do you have any further thoughts on Nauru beyond what you were saying before? Well, Nauru, like Tavulu, is a, is a small population. It underlines just how important it is to understand the elite politics in those countries. And Nauru has previously been associated with quite a strong pro-Taiwan line. And the flip side of that has been at the receiving end of direct pressure from China. And I think it shows that um, the vulnerability of, of China's ability to flip the elite, I think that vulnerability, though, is double-edged. China also has to contend with the fact that elite capture, if that's the name of the game, it can work in reverse as well. Um, so I think for the moment, this is obviously a an undesirable development from Australia's perspective. As Blake said, I think Canberra has tiptoed very carefully around this, not to be seen to publicly comment too much. But I think there will be concern um, behind the scenes that a lot of the optimism that was um, uh, around the time of the, the announcement of the Falapini Union now it's quickly dissipated and the contours of the influence competition are, are now appearing to favor Beijing. You, you think so? I mean, that's an interesting reflection. I, I was going to ask about how you think Australia's push and the US uh, push for sort of greater engagement with the region is faring, but you, you think it is starting to lean Beijing's way? In this particular instance, the result of the election in Taiwan was, I think, clearly a factor that Beijing wanted to get a quick win in retaliation. One obvious way to do that was in the Pacific, where four countries still continue to, to recognize Taiwan. So I think there was that particular element. In Papua New Guinea, I don't think the same pressures apply. I think Australia's levers of influence there and in, in the other parts of Melanesia are, are, are stronger, with the standout exception of the Solomon Islands. But I think if we look um, further afield, it's not just a question of Beijing converting influence. It's a question of the US and its allies not seizing opportunities. We can talk a little bit about the situation uh, with the compact states in um, the northern part of the Pacific. They should be well on their way to renewing a, a compact agreement with the United States, securing funding for the next 20 years. They're very important strategically for the United States. But we see that that hasn't made progress through through Congress. So I think there's an element of uh, not just of China seizing the initiative. There's also, unfortunately, a level of inertia and uh, political dysfunction, which isn't helping things. Mm. Blake, what are your reflections on that? Yeah, I think particularly when we're looking at those compact states, everything said in a great way on a political level. It had support from the Biden administration. It has support from the Australian government and it has support from the compact states themselves. But the problem is that, you know, domestic issues in the US and elsewhere kind of take the, these priorities and they take their eye off the game, essentially. And if they take their eye off the game too much in this space, then their, their worst nightmares are going to come true. China's there seeking to engage with these countries. Two of those compact states still recognize Taiwan. Obviously, if they were going to provide a large level of support they would want to see that switch in recognition as well because that's their ultimate goal across the region. 
And so they're going to take those opportunities if they arise. But this is very much, I don't always like to draw comparisons to it being a game because I don't think it is a game, but this is a situation where the US has the ball and has the potential just to drop it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We're all, we're all paying attention to uh, to Ukraine in, in that sense uh, and everything that's going on in uh, Washington with Ukraine and, and Israel as well. But we can add, add the Pacific to the list of, of regions where the attention is uh, perhaps not being applied the right way. Just to wrap up, gentlemen, perhaps we can just throw forward what we should be looking out for in the Pacific region in the, in the months and 12 to 18 months ahead. Blake, first to you. Well, it's the it's the global year of elections, and that's no different in the Pacific. So we have a few key elections to come up in the region this year, including in Solomon Islands in April, in Kiribati sometime later this year. Uh, as I said earlier, these two countries both switched recognition to China last election. There's been a lot of promises that came from those. Not all of those promises have been delivered. It'll be very interesting to check in on these and see how the public has responded to those changes uh, and what the benefits or the pressures have been brought into those countries because of it. Okay, and you and to you on the same subject? I think there is political instability across the horizon in the Pacific. We can't put all, all of that at the foot of geopolitical competition. I think there's always been that level of instability, but it, it carries increased implications now. Um, and some of the countries that you would hopefully depend on, like Fiji and Tonga, are both suffering political instability. That's also going to carry across to the multilateral agenda with the Pacific Island Forum. If Tonga, which is to take the reins, is in political disarray, then that's obviously going to make the region more vulnerable to a divide and conquer approach from, from outside influences in the form of, uh, of China trying to pick off the biddable individual members. I think the Pacific Islands have to maintain their unity as, as far as possible, but clearly that's going to be difficult if they're preoccupied with instability in the key countries, which um, includes Papua New Guinea. When uh, Prime Minister Marape goes back from Canberra, he faces a, an, an uncertain uh, welcome back in, in Port Moresby. Hopefully let uh, the speech to Parliament will will give him a bit of uh, wind in his sails, but uh, I, I wouldn't bank on stability across the key Pacific countries in the year ahead. Plenty for our foreign affairs officials and security officials to be uh, grappling with this year. Gentlemen, thank you both very much for that. It's a really, really helpful dissection of what's going on in our region at the moment. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Blake and Ewan. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. That's all we have time for today on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.